Hello there, and welcome back to Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany, your host for the show. We're so glad you came back. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, check out episode one to learn more about who we are. But a brief summary, we are both certified clinical transplant social workers who specialize in all things heart transplant and LVAD, also known as left ventricular assist device. Our goal is to talk all the things transplant and LVAD, from the social work perspective and to bring the human element back into the world of transplant for our fellow social workers and our patients, as well as professionals who may stumble in. As a reminder, we are social workers, but we are not your social worker. So we hope topics discussed here will lead you to further discussions within your own transplant team. We have a trigger warning for today's episode. We're gonna be talking about grief, death, and dying. So if you're not in a place at this moment to listen to that, we'll give you a moment to pause and turn this episode off. We invite you to come back when you're ready, if you're ready. Otherwise, we'll have a new episode for you next week. Take care of yourself, listeners. Thanks. All right. With that being said, welcome back. Beats by Social Work. I'm Kristen. And I'm Tiffany. Yes. How are you doing? I am doing, mm-hmm. period. How are you doing? Uh, likewise, I am doing. Um, but I do have to admit, I... Uh, you know, as we've talked about before, it's so freaking hot where we're at and part-time hippie and like to be barefooted. And I walked barefooted outside yesterday. I burned the bottom of my feet. Oh, that was um, a lesson perhaps in making better choices in life. Yes. As my cousin says, well, that was a choice. (laughs) It was. We all make choices every day. Yours was um, not intellectually wise, but you know, I'm not in a place to judge. So needless to say, listeners, if you are out there doing a grounding exercise and you're needing to be barefoot in order to ground yourself to the earth. Yeah. Could we, could we create an environment inside perhaps with some music? I think I will. The sounds of outside. Maybe get like one of those dog pee pads that look like grass. You do that. You put some, you could get some cylinder blocks from like your Home Depot or Lowe's and kind of create a little like environment inside that is the concrete. If you truly feel you need that concrete grounding. I like it. I like the reframe. Needless to say, I'm currently walking around like I'm in the Barbie movie because I can't put my heels down because they have blisters on them. So now I have these Yes, I look very, very unique. Uh, but that's how I'm doing. Burnt and grumpy. <laughs> You're a picture of a house. <laughs> Good for you. Oh, yes. It's been one of those weeks, you know. But I think, and a question, at what point do we say it's been one of those weeks versus this is just our life? And what are we doing to change it versus saying the same thing over and over? And that's where I'm at right now is... Well, yes, it has been a week because it has been seven days that it's what makes up a week. And here we are. So you're trying to practice the, the concept of radical acceptance. Correct. Okay. Correct. Which it's can be a very good, good tool. You know, there's a lot of tools out there, especially in DBT, that give us something to offer. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we do as social workers is we, in order to give this information to our patients, sometimes we have to try it ourselves, right? And so with that being said, um, we have a very heavy topic and uh, to discuss today, but an important one at that. 
So today we do have, we have a quote. We actually have two quotes because there are sometimes so many good quotes out there about the topic at hand that we just can't leave it to one. So I will share the first. And Tiffany, if you will, please do us the honor of closing us uh, with the second. So the first quote is, no rule book, no time frame, no judgment. Grief is as individual as a fingerprint. Do what is right for your soul by Michelle Steinke. I, I apologize to Michelle for my attempt at her last name. Well, we're sorry, Michelle. The second quote is, you treat a disease, you win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, you will win no matter what the outcome. Catch Adams. And I love that quote because it goes right into what we're talking about today. Sometimes things don't work out the way that we want them to with our patients. And that can be quite hard for us, for the patients, for the families, for the medical team. Just talk about humanizing the heaviness. Yeah, exactly. And this is an episode that really can pertain to anybody that works in the world of transplant, alvet, or even chronic illness, um, in-stage organ failure, oncology. There's many different genres where some of this can be very applicable. The work we do is intense and heavy. We see life and death every single day. And sometimes we see life and death in the same day. I don't know about you, but I've had those days where one patient were doing withdrawal of care and we had goals of care conversations and the patient is, uh, the family is saying goodbye to their loved one. And then two doors down, a patient gets an organ offer for a transplant. And that can be one of the traumatizing things about the ICU setting is hearing people code in rooms right next to you while you're there waiting for a transplant. And how do you process that type of living on the edge of life at all times while you're there? And I think that's the the hard part, even for the patients. You know, I've had many patients that have told me that their time in the ICU was hard, not just because they were stuck in an ICU, but because they would watch their neighbors. They could see out their door and they would hear the code call and everybody run to their neighbor's door and then they got a new neighbor. And so they watched that and that fear too of when may that be happening to them. And so that's why we said it's, it's time to talk about it. We need, we need to talk about the work that we do and bring light to it. I think yeah. one of the things that comes to mind too for the work we do and for our patients is I like to refer to it as cautious hope, cautious optimism. Um, Cause that's what we're doing for our patients. They're, they're an end stage organ failure. And this is kind of their last option going through the transplant evaluation. But as we've talked about before, um, the evaluation is not a guarantee that they will be a, a candidate. If they are a candidate, it's not a guarantee that they'll get an organ. So it's having this hope, but but also being realistic and grounding. Um, you know, we talk about the fact that this could help their quality of life, this intervention of a transplant or an implant of an LVAD. Um, but we also know that it could make life more complex. Even if they do get the organ, perhaps things don't go the way that they intended for it. And 
I think one of the worst things we hear is I wish I wouldn't have done this. Um, yeah. Those are the tough ones, but we don't know. Yeah. There's certain things we don't have that crystal ball. And so it's making sure that they understand the risks and not to be Debbie Downer, but to make sure that they realize that this is something that could happen. Um, while also hoping that it doesn't. <laughs> so it's tough. Mm -hmm. It's a tough line to be in. It's this uh, almost like you're in purgatory. Yeah. And that's, that's really the question is how do we support and validate our patients and our colleagues when the stereotypical perspective of what we do is you're giving people life and you're giving people hope. And this is, you know, you should be proud and excited for the gift of life that you've received. And it's like, yeah, but I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for these complications. I didn't sign up for these medical side effects, uh, or whatever the case may be. Um, and a lot of times that goes into the misnomer of that transplant is a cure yeah. and that it's not, and that that's not the case. Transplant is a treatment option. You're trading one set of problems for another, but you still have doctor's appointments. You will still be hospitalized. The goal is less often and improved quality of life, but you are still somebody that is going to have significant lifestyle changes. There's so that's one of the things we can educate on, but validating it too, when the patient and the staff feel that there's not a space to process this sucks and I didn't sign up for this and I'm sad for my patient or I'm sad for my family member. Mm -hmm. And so how does that work? Like, what does that look like? Well, the whole thing that we're talking about today is that, and there's a term for it called disenfranchised grief. And so Tiffany, can you start us off by defining what disenfranchised grief is? Sure. Uh, and giving credit where credit's due, this is a term that was um, created by a physician in the 80s and defined by Ken Doka as losses that one experiences that are not openly acknowledged, socially supported, or publicly mourned. Um, a, another defined core defined this as grief that one experiences when a person incurs a loss that goes against cultural norms and is not considered valid by others a person, a place, a thing. It's, it's a hidden grief. Uh, and I think it's, it's fitting that we talk about it and acknowledge it because we experience a grief that society doesn't acknowledge in the work that we do. And sometimes even as clinicians, we try not to acknowledge it. We minimize it. We sweep it on the rug. But we get to know our patients very closely and very intimately. And at times more than they've shared with their closest friends and not saying that we are taking the place of their closest friends by any means, but this is an experience. I, I often say to my patients going through transplant is like going to war. You can't explain it to someone that's never been through it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're the, the person or the medical team or the people that the patient can be very open and and or other transplant recipients of, you know, this just does suck. I'm happy, I'm excited, but it sucks. The waiting sucks versus all the questions that they may get from 
friends and family of, well, when's the transplant happening? You want me to go look for something for you? Things like that. But it's, it is heavy. And when we lose a patient, it's hard. It's a grief. Some are harder than others. You know, there's, it's part of our job. We compartmentalize it, but mm-hmm. it is tough. And sometimes we lose a patient and we have to go on to help the next patient. I can attest, I've been in the room when we've withdrawn life support for a patient. I've been in the room. I've been holding on to their, their loved one while they're holding the patient's hand as mm-hmm. they took their last breath. And then I get paged to a patient that needs a meal voucher. And you, mm-hmm. you, you got to turn on a dime. It's, well, I'm still at work today and okay, on to the next. And yeah. how do we, how do we That's manage exactly that? exactly right. You had mentioned something previously, and I love this statement that you shared in a, one of your presentations, if you can share it about PPE. When we go into a patient's room that has those contact precautions, we all know those, that you have to put on your gown, your mask, your goggles, because it's a known contagion, right? But what do we do to protect ourselves from these types of, of things? There's What's your metaphorical gown? goggles and basically what is your emotional PPE Mm -hmm. and PPE is personal protective equipment so what steps do you take in order to preserve your well-being and honor your emotional process in your space that may be journaling that may be a hobby a self-care exercise uh or a self-soothing exercise thank Uh, you (laughs) you're welcome But let's talk about certain types of disenfranchised grief. So disenfranchised grief can manifest in different ways. And there's different examples. And so uh, like the first one would be non-death losses. Um, That's going to be the grief over a divorce, grief over a relationship breakup, loss of a job or uh, moving, relocation. So there's a lot of uh, non-death losses that come with transplant and LFAD. One of those uh, non-death losses would be your lifestyle changes. With the LFAD, you get the limitations on what showering may look like for you, or uh, the you know if you loved swimming and now you can't swim because of the drive line and the batteries and all the equipment. With transplant, it, a non-death loss could be looking at the restrictions of isolation precautions when you're immunosuppressed and certain aspects of the lifestyle changes associated with that. So, and a lot of times people grieve, especially uh, LVAD patients that transition to a heart transplant or a dialysis patient that transitions to a kidney, you may find yourself grieving over the loss of predictability. You knew you had to charge your batteries. You knew you had to show up to dialysis every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. You had certain things and structure that you could count on. Um, now your dosing is is fluid. They're, cha- they're adjusting your meds constantly. You find yourself in and out of hos- the hospital and feeling like you may have less control and grieving over the loss of control. Well, and I I think I add there too, you grieve your team. 
um, when you were on dialysis, you had your dialysis workers, you had your dialysis team that you got to know. Um, with an LVAD, you have your LVAD team. And sometimes the transplant team may be different than the LVAD team. And so it's also that loss of transitioning to a new team, though it's for the best, hopefully, um, it's still that that is a, a grief. Yeah, exactly. And then the next example would be stigmatized losses. And so that would be a loss or, or a grief related to a circumstance or relationship that is stigmatized in your social situ- your social circles, your culture, your religious background, any of those things. But it's something that is taboo or shunned upon. In so that would be an example of a stigmatized loss. Might be if uh, someone you love passed away due to substance misuse or substance abuse. Or um, if you had a relationship that was stigmatized in many communities, same-sex relationships are still greatly stigmatized. So if you lost or there was a death of a same-sex partner, there's a stigma associated or could potentially be associated with that and causes it to become more isolating. And so I think it's just, it's one of those things, there's many different examples we could put in these categories, but it's recognizing society makes a lot of rules, unfortunately, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but who says we always have to play by the rules? That is a very good point. Well, and how do you play by the rules when the rules keep changing? Mm -hmm. It's very true. That's why there's no guidebook for death, unfortunately. No. And grief can't be put in a box. Nope. And so then the, one of the other Examples of disenfranchised grief is what would be considered an ambiguous loss. That's going to be a loss that has no clear resolution, no certainty about the loss. You don't know when the next shoe is going to drop, so to speak. So that's uh, that's if um, those are going to be circumstances where people, you know, if someone goes missing and the family is continuing to look for them years and years later. Um, there's no closure. Uh, A lot of times just having the closure of finding the loved one is is allowing that grief process to proceed a little more, but it doesn't take away from the pain or the loss. That's a lot of times looked at as grieving someone who's still alive. Yeah. That can even be when when a relationship between a child and a parent um, becomes skewed and there no longer is a relationship, but that individual is still alive. So a stranger of contact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And specifically with what our topic is at hand and talking about this with really related to chronic illness, transplant and stage organ failure, what happens when a patient is a longstanding transplant patient and starts, um, you know, the, the organ that they received is a different chronological age than they are, but the patient is still aging. And so you see effects of cognitive delay, dementia, or if uh, they get another terminal illness unrelated to their transplant, cancer, or something along those lines. So the person is still physically present but psychologically or relationally absent. So again, disenfranchised grief is grief that 
as Kristen said, doesn't fit into a box. And it's, it's grief that is outside of the quote norm, unquote. Um, and we think about that even when we change jobs. I mean, I have talked about it on here. I moved across the country to take a different job and I had to grieve that loss, even though it was my choice, there was still a grief of the loss of that team, that familiarity, that population. And so even if it's your choice, you're still allowed to grieve it. Exactly. Disenfranchised grief is is so good to learn if you are any professional that works the world of transplant or LVAD, because how often do we hear it said to the patients, why are you sad? You should be happy. You should be happy. You should, you uh, are, you should be living life and doing all these things, climbing Mount Everest and giving TED talks because of this gift of life. You should be happy. And by being sad, you're not showing gratitude for the donor. And there's a lot of shame associated with that and vulnerability. And it takes the space away from the patient and the family's needs to grieve those those disenfranchised losses, the non-death losses, the ones that are stigmatized or the ones that are ambiguous, feeling no end game at all. And you could even be grieving ambiguously while you're waiting for an organ. You have no idea when you're going to get a transplant, but you're sitting here waiting and feeling like life is going on and grieving that while you wait with no deadline. And I think that it's also during that time, you may lose some of your transplant friends. So, you yeah. know, we encourage support group and we have patients that attend regularly and they, they make connections and network or now with social media, people are able to network and remain in touch. And so sometimes you might've met someone that's in the transplant community that you've never actually met, but you build a connection and they, they text and talk and all of those things. And then they find out that person died and there mm -hmm. is a grief, but it's hard to put into words. I mean, the loss of a friend is a different type of grief, grief as a whole. When we talk about something in this nature of maybe you've not met that person, but you have the connection, you share the same process, journey, and people may not understand why are you so upset. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's another thing that we need to recognize as social workers, especially when we lose a patient that we know another patient is close with, not that we can share with that other patient. We can't tell anyone, but if that other patient starts acting a little different, we need to be on alert. We need to be a support for them. Or if the patient that passed family has shared and we know that, it's that, hey, we're, we're, we're checking on you. I've had that happen as well, especially in some of my young adult populations of knowing that that loss is gonna hit, hit a couple people. Um, so while you might be grieving as a, as a provider, you're also knowing that some of your patients may be grieving that loss too. Exactly. I'm glad that you brought that up. There's, um, it's so true that just being a staff member, our own grief, and if we grieve over the loss and death of a patient, especially if it's a patient who, uh, let's say, 
an individual who really struggled with medical adherence and medical compliance and that lack of, uh, or lack of resources. And they didn't have the resources necessary to be fully successful. These different, um, less tangible equations to why they passed away. It's harder to process that. And if you are a staff member or provider, and then you have this patient that you got close to, and you feel so powerless, if I could just fix this one part of their situation, then they would do better. I I can give a very good example of that. I had a, a very young patient many years ago that unfortunately was reaching end of life. And when we called the palliative care team, the palliative care, one of the palliative care doctors looked at me and said, so you're telling me that you called me and now this patient gets to die. You called me to the bedside because you couldn't get the patient insurance. And I, I was grieving. I was fully in the throes of grief. This was a patient I got extremely close to. And and I was already facing disenfranchised grief in that moment, but then to stigmatize it further and be punitive and to, uh, to place blame. I understand too that this individual that said that is also human and the scenario at hand really poked a bruise in her, but her projection of that onto me did not help in my individual grieving process. When we could have aligned better, recognize that this is a situation we're both powerless in, there were scenarios we did not have control over, and that our reactions were grief-based. And that patient in particular, even many years later, that individual's name still comes up amongst the team when there's any type of case that even remotely is similar I hear several times, several colleagues that will say, oh man, okay, this is headed in the same direction as patient XYZ. And so you can tell too, that there's still a significant amount of grief there. And I think you bring up a good point in that we think about our staff members too, and we don't have favorite patients, right? We don't, nobody has favorite patients. Uh, I say that facetiously because as much as we try not to, not that we're giving any special privileges to those that we consider favorite. Um, and, and maybe the word favorite isn't the word I'm looking for. Perhaps the those patients that just leave a special print on your heart. And mm-hmm. we all have a patient that comes to mind or maybe multiple. And staff, we know, have special bonds with certain patients too. Again, not that we're giving any favoritism. This is all very heavily re- regulated. So there's no putting someone that you like to the top of the list or getting someone in for medical appointments sooner than others. Okay. We're not saying that, but those patients, we don't have shortcuts. No, but those patients, you just have those connections with. And Mm -hmm. when you learn of their passing, the impact that it has on the staff. Now there's some that's their team. They've bonded with multiple members of the team. There's some that maybe, you know, your nurse coordinator has a special bond with that patient. And so you're also being that resource to your team, to your staff. I like to always say that I'm not just the social worker for the patient, but for the team as well, um, because loss is hard. And mm-hmm. the thing is, is that sometimes we're the only ones that we can talk about it with because HIPAA, you can't go home and talk to your significant other. You can't 
go home and, and call your, your closest friend to tell them about this situation because HIPAA. And so sometimes you're stuck with that on your own or finding that, that team member mate that is able to process it with you. Um, and I think that's important. And it's important to figure out a way that you can honor and grieve that individual that we all carry a cemetery in our heads. Mm-hmm. And it's up to us on how we tend to that cemetery. Some have multiple patients in there. And as you said, when you think of a situation, all of a sudden you're, you're drawn to that patient. Oh, mm-hmm. this, you remember so-and-so? Let's not go down that route. Or let's be a little bit more vigilant. Um, there's some that just a situation Man, they're they're a young individual with young children. That reminds me so much of so and so. And I wanna mm-hmm. I wanna take a minute to remember so and so as I'm preparing myself for this patient. Um and so it is, it's a matter of how you tend. Some people don't tend to their cemetery. And so there's weeds all around the headstones because they try to ignore it. That also doesn't work. Because then it just leaves with a messy yawn yard in your, your head. And so figuring out a way that works within the confines of your work, within the confines of being able to still be the best social worker that you can be. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's getting through your day, but then finding a spot on your way home or listening to a song, or maybe that's before you go see the next patient, there is a bench at work that you are going to call your, your grief bench, your honoring bench, that you go and take a minute, that you have a book at work that you write write a name down and and write an association down. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning that it's important to have some form of a way when we are experiencing disenfranchised grief to, to have that closure for ourselves or to have that way to honor them. You may not be going to that funeral. You may not be going to that normal grief place that you would uh, with another loss. So it's coming up with your own kind of tradition. For those situations. Well, and that uh, that's backed by research. Um, there is so much data that indicates how just having a ritual is so cathartic and therapeutic and healing. And that's why there every society has some sort of a ritual or um, a ritual or practice around death and dying. And so that may be a funeral, that may be a ceremony, that may be something more subtle, um, but there is something about that. And it backs up that ability to give us closure. It doesn't mean that the chapter is closed and you never think about them again, or you never you know, deal with that emotional process again, but the closure in itself is part of the steps to help with the healing process. Uh, I recently read a book that I know, I swear to God, I need that on a t-shirt. I recently read a book. There was a book that talks about that. Um, I say it 400 times a day. It's true. But, I, um, I hear it a lot. <laughs> yeah. But I tried to do something different recently where I really wanted to read more fiction because all I do is read nonfiction and it's getting a little fatiguing. So I wanted to read some fiction books that weren't what I normally would pick. Um, so I signed up for the book of the month club and it's been pretty cool, not in 
this isn't an endorsement or whatever. But hey, Book of the Month Club, if you want to pay me to uh, say this, then uh, I will take that book for free every month. Uh, but I recently wrote, read a book. I did not write a book. I was like, dang. I know. I just like, you know, with all that time I got, uh, <laughs> I read one that was so good. Uh, and it was called The Regrets of Clover. The Collective Regrets of Clover, I think is what it was called. Anyways, it was a book about a death doula. And um, how she was so unafraid of the death and dying process. And so she sat with people as they were dying and she basically kept these little books um, and wrote down as part of her, she had a ritual Um, and I'm not giving any spoilers, but she basically had a ritual in the book where she talks about how she doesn't take the train home after her client or patient dies. She walks home so that she can feel the wind on her face and she could see the trees and she can feel her feet walking to prove to her that she's still herself, that she's still alive. And then when she gets home, she takes her little notebooks out and she writes their last statement or their regret or something along those lines. And then that all unfolds into the story and it's a beautifully told story, but that is such a beautiful demonstration of a personal ritual that helps in the death and dying process. And, uh, Tiffany, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but they mentioned death cafes in the book. So apparently, and this is something that started in Europe, um, I think in Amsterdam, but I could be wrong, but it's people that it's like a, almost like an AA group, but for people who want to have a space that they can openly and without stigma or without shame or whatever, just talk about death, talk about how they process death, what death means, what it looks like. And so they call them death cafes and you can, so I looked it up and there are death cafes in my city. Um, what? Wow. That is interesting. I'm going to have to look and see if there are some in my area. I'm, I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at it because I think there is some stigma around talking about death and Mm -hmm. some people are very uncomfortable with it. Some people can become infatuated with it. I think there's a fine line too, when we talk about complicated grief Mm -hmm. and, you know, considering the aspects of complicated grief, and, and what goes into that. But I'm very curious and I'm, I'm now going to have to do some research because I'm curious on, is there structure of these? Is there rules? Is it just a cafe where you can go in and freely talk about death? I have no idea. I wish I could okay. answer it for you, but okay. um, they do in this book, they, and of course it was a fiction novel, but I, I mean, I fact checked it. There are death cafes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so kind of said there were some scenes within the, the cafe. And, um, but it, it just was kind of like what I would imagine a, an AA group or a support group to be like, it kind of was in the back of a library or a back of a church or wherever they could find space and just, uh, okay, we know the topic is death. Who wants to go first and see where it takes them. So I really do want to try one, um, just to see, how others process it in different settings. Yeah, sorry. I think that's fascinating. I think it's part of our job. 
I think we need to recognize that part of our job. I think we also need to recognize when we are not able to handle our own grief in a situation. Um, if you are not able to be supportive to the patient and the patient's family, then it may be a moment where you need to excuse yourself. Um, our goal is not to be comforted by the patient or the family, but to provide comfort, to sit in that with them. It's making sure that you are not putting additional pressure on that family. That being said, I think that's another aspect of when we talk about disenfranchised grief is the families grieving the loss of the team. I've had multiple of family members say that of, you guys have become part of our family and now we don't get to see you anymore. And that's a difficult because they, they aren't our patients any longer. And so the scope of our practice is to support the transplant patient, the LVAD patient and their family. And so at what point does that statute of limitation of supporting that family last? And I don't have an answer for you on that. I know that I've made follow-up calls to family after a patient passes to provide support. And I tell them, if you need anything, let me know. But if they get to a point where they're calling regularly for just essentially kind of counseling sessions that I make sure I get them linked with a, a grief therapist, you know, and I think that's important. Therapy of any type would be important, but specifically maybe in this case, a grief therapist, which can be tough because not all grief therapists are going to understand that either. And, you know, the worst thing that someone could say is, well, you knew they were sick or you, you knew that they, they were on borrowed time. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, the bonus years are amazing, but that doesn't mean that it takes away from the grief when we lose a patient. Two things can be true at the same time. I will say that every day of my life, I will always say that in my career is you can be happy for those bonus years that you had while also be sad that it wasn't enough time. Because honestly, in life, it's never enough time. No matter how old you are when you pass, no matter how old you are when, when a loved one passes, no matter how many years you got to spend together, no matter how many less times or not enough time, it's, it's never going to be enough time. And with that, I'll offer a resource that I have, that has completely changed my perspective on grief. And something that I recommend to anybody <laughs> is it's a book called, um, you know, because going into what I said earlier, I've read this book before. <laughs> it's called, it's okay that you're not okay. I just and started that book. Did you really? I know that we talked about it before. I did. I just started it in, by the pool as part of my self-soothing rituals. I've been trying to spend more time in the pool when it's not as hot out, but um, I like to read at the pool. And so I had ordered that book a while ago and it's been sitting on my shelf because I needed to be in a space where I was ready to read it. And so mm -hmm. I recently started started into it. What do you think about it so far? So far, I'm digging it. It is not your typical, um, let's define, let's define grief as said by XYZ. And then let's go into it's, I don't know, I'm not that far into it. So I can't 100% speak to it like you can. But so far, I've been pleasantly surprised. I think that's why I was putting off reading it. I thought it was going to be another one of those non-fictional self-helpish, self-learning books. And I too was getting a little burnt out. Even my podcasts lately have been 
not as much as some of my favorite therapy ones that I listen to. I mean, aside of for ours, of course, but of course, because, you know, I listen to that on repeat helps me go to sleep. Um, but I've been listening to some some other ones because I needed a little bit of a break and I recognize it myself. And I think that's okay too, to recognize what you need. And I didn't mean to hijack that conversation. So go back to telling us about it's okay not to be okay. You did not hijack it at all. You, in fact, answered my question. So I am very thankful um, that you did. So uh, it's by Megan Devine. And um, Megan, if you're out there listening, we would love to have you on the podcast. But it's called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And it's beautifully written. I will forever and ever recommend it to anyone experiencing grief. I actually keep at least two copies in my library in the event that I need to give one away. So that's how much I believe in this book. Uh, I should have just borrowed one from you. You should have. You should have. But I would have been shipping and handling on that, though. That's true. But I also would have just uh, bought another copy anyways, just because I will have always always have two in my library. Uh, But yeah, that's um, pretty much the end of the episode. We would love to hear what other resources that you all out there are working with and what helps you. Um, Also, uh, just speaking for myself, I really appreciate when other people give um, give feedback in terms of how you explain grief in ways that may be unique and uh, reframe it in a way that normalizes it and gives the space necessary. So share, I, share your tips and tricks. I agree. I think the work we do is heavy. It, there's no way around saying it. It's okay to acknowledge that. It's important to acknowledge that. And if you haven't heard it lately, y'all are doing great. We are transplant and LVAD social workers. We are stronger together. I just want to say in the words of one of my artists I've come to love, Trevor Hall, sometimes it's okay to put down what you're carrying. All right. With that, talk to you again soon out there. Uh, If you have anything to share, we would love to hear your beatbox for the week. Take care of yourselves, guys. Bye now. All right. Bye. The information shared on this podcast comes from two certified clinical transplant and mechanical circulatory support social workers. The views and opinions expressed are our own and not affiliated with any specific institution or organization, but to the community of transplant and MCS social work at large. Beats by social work, Tiffany and Kristen and affiliated guests and programs expressly disclaim any responsibility and shall have no liability for any damages, loss, injury, or liability whatsoever suffered as a result of your reliance on the information contained in this podcast or in any media. And none of the persons and entities noted above endorse specifically any tests, treatment, or procedures mentioned on the show. Our goal is to provide you with the most accurate information in the most respectful way. However, we are human and we ask for grace and accountability. If we say something you feel is incorrect or inappropriate, please tell us so we can correct ourselves and work to be better. Do not ignore inaccuracies or hold your feelings in. The only way to learn and ensure we do not make the same mistakes twice is to be made aware. That being said, our goal is to share information and to connect with our audience. But this is a new concept and we may fall short at times. So please be patient and respectful when you do call us out.